I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hey everyone, I interviewed Rose Santana for today's episode and I just love getting to know her and meet her. She's so engaging, so funny, and even this this episode is pretty science heavy, so it talks a lot about like heavy metals, which is um, what she's studying for her PhD. So she's super smart, but you she makes topics like heavy metals and pollution interesting and fun and engaging. So I really, really like talking to her. We also talk about, you know, advice for uh, early career conservationists, how to find a mentor, funding for conservation, how to make more profit in conservation, the intersectionality of climate change being a social justice issue. We really get into that, and that's very important. And if you hear a lot of pauses, it's because I was just blown away what, by what she had to say. I, I couldn't talk. Like, I'm still... I still can't get words out because it's so good and so engaging. And every time she like laid down some truth, I was like, I can't add to that. So enjoy my conversation with Rose Santana. And I wanted to also let you guys know, if you want to contact me, if you know someone who you want to be interviewed, please send them my way. Please send any recommendations for future guests my way. My email is novaconservationtravel at gmail.com, all one word. And we do have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash novaconservation. Uh, please support us because this is these are important stories that need to get out. And we would love and really, really uh, value your support. And we are also still kind of on the hunt for a co-host. So if you know someone who might be interested in hosting a a podcast about these types of topics, let me know. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Rose Santana. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nova Conversations. I'm here with Rose Santana and I can't wait for you to hear her story, hear her background, hear <laughs> all the things. Um, I am just really excited to finally get to talk to you. We tried to set it up last week, technical issues, and now we're here. So Rose, welcome. How Hi. are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's it's sunny down here in Florida. We haven't had a lot of rain, which is very confusing because it's rainy season. So now we're kind of just all like on edge. Like when's the rain coming? When's the next <laughs> hurricane coming? Like it's like almost probably like you guys are preparing for something massive to hit. Yeah, especially considering the fact that we haven't gotten anything this year so far, but a lot of places have had issues. So like a lot of places have had hurricanes and we're all kind of just sitting here in South Florida like, are we next or are we good this year again <laughs> yeah last year did you get a big hurricane you're in Miami right yeah we haven't gotten anything major in like the last five six years wow so, yeah we're we've been very lucky so now we're kind of just all sitting here like is it almost time for us yeah it almost <laughs> seems like the, the cards <laughs> the roll of the die has run out <laughs> that's weird like because like okay I'm going to do the peninsula with my hand of Florida. And it, so I know Jacksonville's gotten hit a few times. Yeah. And then of course, like New Orleans and um, up on the, um, what's it called? The, the Gulf interior side of Florida has gotten the panhandle. Hit. The panhandle, that's the word, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it must just keep going around Miami, is that? Yeah, right? yeah. Like the Keys got hit, I think two or three years ago, but we, like it missed like, everything outside of the keys like northern so we're kind of just sitting here like are we okay wow <laughs> tense That's, that seems very <laughs> tense so okay before i get into your background in history i have i've been trying to remember to ask people what's their favorite field story like when you go out do biology when you're snorkeling or diving or doing whatever it is you do as a lovely biologist is it you want to share your story of you know, like a, a funny story or just a really cool story, something interesting, something embarrassing, whatever you want. 
What's your favorite field story to share? I mean, I've been in the field in every possible spectrum that you could be in the field. I've been in the field scuba diving, snorkeling. I've been just in the field setting up traps and, and setting up cameras. I've been on a giant boat. It, I've been on a helicopter that flew us out to an ice glacier. I mean, wow. it, it, there's so many. It's so weird because you think marine science and you think everything is the same. And I was like, no, I mean, even my experiences have been vastly different. I mean, it's really, I'm terrified of snakes. So <laughs> it's great that for a while I worked in mangroves and we had put out these traps to try to sort of get an idea for what the biodiversity looks like within these small mangrove communities. And there was a snake inside the trap and I saw it before I opened the trap. And um, I was very brave and I kind of just chucked the the trap back into the mangrove and I was like nope that that trap is lost forever I nope, <laughs> not doing it <laughs> not touching you know? that one I was like that one is just gone and my like my field mate was just like really did you just do that I was like, yep I did <laughs> moving on <laughs> you go to like the data entry part you're like oh I don't know where trap 37 went um, I was like it just disappeared I have no clue <laughs> like, you know that's field work but it, it's it's fun because you always have like different different scenarios I mean a lot of the times when I'll go out into the field and I'll do like snorkeling or diving surveys you know there's always a whole bunch of people interested in what it is that we're doing and I think that's mm. the great part about science is giving people that aren't involved into it half an opportunity a lot of times they will be interested in what you do so it's just always fun to get out there and interact with people when I'm in the field that, that's really cool and I want to circle back to that <laughs> um, but for right now, can you talk about your background, where you're from? I know you've traveled, well, you've moved all over. How did you end up in Miami? Um, your, your history. I'm a mutt by every possible definition <laughs> of the word. You always ask me, they're like, where you're from? I was like, well, how much time do you have? Um, so I was born in Dominican Republic. Um, my mother's Dominican and my father's German. I spent some time down here when I was younger, when I was around eight or so. Then when we moved to Germany, I spent a significant amount of time there. I graduated high school there and I got my first bachelor's degree in biotechnology in Germany. Then I moved back to Florida to pursue a degree in marine biology. And I've sort of kind of been here ever since, but I sort of sprinkled 10 countries or so around in my lifetime where, where I've lived. Um, it's always interesting because I feel like every single country that I've been in, the one thing that it always had in common is just the ocean hmm. and it sort of gave me a deeper appreciation for it it was like things change you know people change cultures hmm. change the landscape changes but what there's two things that are always certain the sky and the ocean hmm. I know that so <laughs> that's sort of been it's been one of my main driving factors um, I ended up at Florida International University in Miami I did my degree in marine biology there and now I'm starting my PhD there um and I'm going to be looking at coastal conservation stuff. But it's been sort of interesting because my sort of niche, it was a complete accident that I happened in here. You know, I had once jokingly told, you know, one of the TAs for one of my classes, like, hey, you should hire me to come take care of your fish because I have fish tanks at home. She's like, wait, are you serious? Because I'm <laughs> looking for an assistant. I was like, well, yeah. And I actually <laughs> stayed that day after class for an impromptu interview. And she's like, all right, you start Monday. And I was like, okay, then. <laughs> Great. Wow. <laughs> so it really was an accident, which is why I always tell people, you know, put yourself out there, talk to people, ask for opportunities, because you never know, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. And that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't sound like an accident. That is you being vulnerable and, and aggressive in the sense of like, this is what I want to do with my career and I'm going to make it happen. So that mindset, that manifestation, not accidental. <laughs> but it's funny because, so she did ecotox work. So she looked at how copper affected fish swimming behavior. So by and, ecotox, you mean ecotoxicology? Yeah. Ecotoxicology. So specifically aquatic toxicology. And I mean, it wasn't even something that was on my radar. I never thought about it before as something that I was interested in. And I was like, all right, I mean, you know, I need experience in a lab. This is a way to get my foot through the door. You know, it is what it is. And I ended up doing it and finding it so fascinating because to me, it was just super interesting to learn how what we as people put out into the environment is actually changing the way these animals are behaving in, in the environment and what that means for us in return. So it ended up being something that I was actually really, really interested in and now something that I'm trying to weave into my graduate studies as well. So you never know what your passion is going to be 
people are always like, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. It was like, until you get out there and you sort of dip your toes into everything, don't try to like pigeonhole yourself into one thing. Cause you never know, you know, what amazing thing you're going to see. And I'm like, oh, I think this is really cool. And I'm really passionate about this now. So. Yeah. What specifically about ecotoxicology um, that you said that we're putting chemicals and this is so not my lane, so I'm going to butcher <laughs> it, but we're putting all sorts of compounds and elements that probably shouldn't be in their forms in the ocean. What, what are some examples? Like, can you talk about that well, and how you found that out? Well, for us, we did a lot of stuff as an undergrad, I did a lot of stuff with heavy metals. So copper, mm-hmm specifically because Florida has a huge agricultural industry and copper is used a lot in pesticides, fertilizers, herbicides, fungicides. Really? Um, Yeah. (laughs) So I didn't know that either, but we have all these metals that, you know, we're putting out into the environment. And the issue with heavy metals is that they don't biodegrade over time. So they just continue accumulating in the environment. So, you know, the EPA has put out regulations saying this much amount of metal is, you know, allowed to be used, but then it's never breaking down. So we're just continuously adding and adding on top of it. So it's never going to be at that threshold that they said, it's just going to continue growing, which to me was super scary, but fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Especially since I choose to sort of focus on sublethal effects. So I'm not looking at the, you know, the dosages that will outright kill an animal. I'm looking at what's happening before it dies. Mm. Because even if these animals aren't dying because the concentration is so high, their behavior is still being affected. And if they can't, you know, forage for food, if they can't find mates, if they can't seek shelter, if they can't perceive danger, those populations are still going to decline. So that's what I found interesting. But I mean, I still love my heavy metals. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, there's just so much emerging contaminants that, you know, are coming out recently to be an issue. You know, there's something called PFAS. They're per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which sounds super scary. Wait, say that one more time. Per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. (laughs) PFAS for short, but it's basically just a substance that we use in like fire retardants. We used it in Teflon pans back in the days. Uh, Yeah. So we started using these compounds back in the 1940s, but it's only now that we're starting to see the significant effect that it's having not only on the environment, but on people. It's super understudied. We still don't know what it, you know, what the greater consequences for this are, but, you know, certain studies have linked it, you know, in human health, like health hazards, you know, leading to cancer and and other diseases. So it's very interesting to see what we put out 60 years ago, 70 years ago is now coming back to bite us in the ass, basically. Yeah. (laughs) That's terrifying. I mean, so much in biology and conservation realm. I mean, even something that most people don't think about, one big thing that's sort of popping up more and more all over the place is pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. You know, pharmaceuticals that are not uptaken by the body. So we get rid of them or pharmaceuticals that are flushed down the toilet. You know, there's been studies done with, you know, fish that have been tested, you know, and they, there's heart medication in there and there's cholesterol medication in these fish and antidepressants. And Yep. (laughs) And I was like, great. (laughs) Well, at least our fish aren't depressed. Yeah, but I think they're having other issues. (laughs) (laughs) They're having a lot of other issues. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, would you, okay, two-part question. Would you say ecotoxicology is a a field of study that you would encourage maybe um, early career conservationists to get into? And if so, why? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, here's like for me now, I'm I'm trying to look at how climate change and chemical pollution are working synergistically to affect our our aquatic habitats. Wow. And I mean, climate change, don't get me wrong, and I'm going to get a lot of hate from people because obviously climate change is a big thing, but there's a lot of people working on it. There's not Mm -hmm. a lot of people working on chemical pollution. There's not Mm -hmm. a lot of people working on, you know, biological and physical pollution. You know, everybody always thinks, well, you know, we need to get rid of plastic because, you know, we see plastic, we see marine debris, but we don't see the chemicals and we don't sort of see those hidden contaminants that are not physically there. Mm. So it's, I think, a field that is very underappreciated and underrepresented. And it's definitely something that I think people need to keep a bigger eye on because these contaminants have the potential to cause a lot of damage and they'll cause the damage before we even realize it's happening. So by the time we get to that point, you know, we're going to be trying to backpedal and trying to figure out how to fix the mess we started. But if Mm -hmm. we had more people working on it, we could sort of prevent it from happening before it even gets that far, I think. Yeah. Do you see 
hope? That was my second question. Do you see hope with things turning around? Uh, I mean, I don't want to be gloom and doom. I know, I know. It's so hard because I'm like, I don't want to be like the person that says, nope, we're all screwed. We, we, we waited too long. You know, it went too far. So I do want to say that there's hope. I think a big part of it is just getting, is getting people involved and getting people, you know, to acknowledge that we have an issue. Last year, we had a huge, like a massive fish kill in Biscayne Bay. Thousands of fish just floated up dead one night. And, you know, it was horrible, it was tragic, but it sort of sparked this interest within, you know, the community around Biscayne Bay, Hmm. you know, go to the politicians and ask, you know, for, for changes to be made on septic tanks and, you know, ask for better infrastructure. And it sort of rallied the people. And I think that's what we need. We need the people, like the everyday person to care and the everyday person to rally to make like a big change. Yes, yes, I love (laughs) that. We need the everyday people. Ah, that's good. So talk a little bit about how, when you said the very beginning, how, um, when you're doing your work, when you're out there diving, snorkeling, um, you encounter people all the time who are interested in what you're doing. How do you interact with them? What does that look like? Because if we need the everyday person, this could be a way to get that everyday person is to have them join you on these trips, on these research expeditions or right I mean it really depends on what it is that's happening we've done like little workshops at dive shops to talk a little bit about you know coral health and how to how to you know identify coral diseases and coral bleaching and how report that to you know how to report that to the Florida CFAN program which monitors coral health here in South Florida you know, so getting out there and, you know, talking to people who are constantly on the ground is a great way to do it. I mean, it's something that I want to implement for my graduate studies because we can't always be out there, but mm-hmm. divers are always going to be out there and divers mostly care. I mean, you have one or two, you know, bad apples in the whole thing, mm-hmm. but divers mostly care about the ocean. So it's great to get them involved. Um, you know, every day we have something called King Tide and that's just like the highest tide that we have here in Florida. And it happens three or four times a year. And every time it happens, you know, the streets flood, even though there's not a single cloud in the sky, it's just coming up from the sewage, you know, it's coming up from the ground. And last time we went out, we were out taking water samples to test, you know, for bacteria and other, other nasty things that are floating around in this water that people are just stepping through. And like four or five people came up to us and they're like, Hey, what are you guys doing? We're like, Oh, we're taking water samples. And, you know, they told us the story about how they've lived here for 20 years and 20 years, you know, they've been in the same house and they've never had a flooding issue. And now all of a sudden their whole street gets flooded, you know, four or five times a year and they don't know why. And, you know, we explained it to them. They're like, well, you know, I had no idea that this is why my houses and my streets were flooding. Or, you know, we had a fisherman who was there and he was telling us, you know, about how he catches different fish when there's king tide and how he never knew why, but it was so cool. And he loved coming out to fish, but the park where he fished is now underwater. So he has to Mm -hmm. come up with waders, you know? So it's always fun to hear everybody's story because I think everybody has their own perspective. And I think once they understand why things are happening and what they can do to change that, is sort of where we're going to get that push for people caring about the environment. Mm-hmm. It has and to it, be relatable to them, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, even the way you told that story of people coming up to you, they're asking what you're doing, but in the, in the, in the reality, they want to talk about what they've experienced. Right. You know, like they're, right. they're interested, sure. But really, they want to talk about, well, here's my experience. Here's what I've witnessed over the past 20, 30, 40 years in the area. Here, right. um, and to me, that information is just invaluable. I mean, for scientists, you know, we come and go, basically, you know, especially as a scientist, you're not always going to be in the same region constantly. But these are people who, you know, they've been here for generations, you know, their, their grandparents bought that house, they've lived in that house, you know, like they've mm-hmm. been in the area, they've been in the neighborhoods before, you know, it was a huge metropolitan area, and it was a huge city, you know, and, and those are the stories that I think are just fascinating. And those are the voices that I feel like need to be amplified, because they know what it was yeah. like back then. We're just working off of data, we know data yeah. wise what this looked like back then as scientists, but they're the people that actually were physically there. Yeah, and their stories are valuable. Exactly. Hmm. Um, that's really interesting. I want to go back to uh, your early life when you lived in the Dominican Republic and then in Germany. What got you interested in 
conservation science in the ocean. I mean, you kind of hinted at it in the constants of the sea and or the sea and the sky. Can you go more in depth about that and how you were drawn to this field? I mean, I think I was always meant to be an ocean baby. My father <laughs> was a scuba instructor and my mother worked at the scuba shop. That's where they met in Dominican Republic at a hotel. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of how they met my grandfather on both sides of my family were fishermen. Okay. So in Dominican Republic, I would go out with my grandfather in Dominican Republic, to, you know, when he would go fishing. And when I went to Germany, we lived in a small town up north near, near the North Sea. And, you know, my grandfather was a fisherman and then he would take me out to go fishing. And I would love to go out during, you know, high tides and low tides. And I would walk around and I would find like little jellyfish laying on the floor. And, you know, I tried to take them home and I didn't understand. I couldn't just keep them in a bucket of fresh water. And I was like, well, my jellyfish died. And my grandfather was like, well, duh. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, well, now I want to understand why my jellyfish died. Because I put it in water and it was clean water. <laughs> and this is like back when I was eight years old. And I went and told my parents, I'm going to be a marine biologist. And they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's nice, dear. That's, that's beautiful. And, you know, I think they kind of thought I would grow out of it. And here I am like 20 years later. And I'm like, yep still doing it yeah <laughs> so my family and you know my family and and my culture and what I was surrounded by very much so influenced what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and I love that that interest in learning about species like <laughs> putting the jellyfish in water you're like this makes total sense to me why this would survive but yet it's not so how can I that's just that spark of interest being around the water all the time yeah that was traumatizing to me as a child oh. I would cry again and again and after like the fourth time I was like all right. my grandpa's like all right you need to stop like, dying? he's like because it's fresh water <laughs> and I mean now I understand tap water is entirely different than fresh water which is entirely different than salt water but, you know as a kid that's very confusing and I was like I'm gonna get to the bottom of this as to why this is happening because I will not stand for it I want a pet jellyfish <laughs> it's, and it's your first scientific experiment. You made an observation. You uh, conduct. You know, had a hypothesis. The jellyfish will survive in this bucket of water. It did not. And you conducted an experiment, and then you revised. And that's that's the beginnings of an early scientist. That's so cool. So you were saying you did a whole bunch of different field jobs and have traveled, doing all sorts of things. You worked in the mangroves. You said you were on a helicopter. What type of um, jobs did you have that led you to the career path that you are now? So were you working seasonal temporary field jobs? Was this all in bachelor's, master's? No, this was all within my bachelor's. So within marine science, I say a lot of it is in who you know and who yes. likes you. Yeah. Um, so networking is extremely important. Ironically enough, I've always had the same job. I've always been, you know, it, I've been in the same lab. It's always been the same lab, the same job. Um, what do you mean? It, it's always been the same lab, same job since I've always been in the same lab. I've been in the same lab since I started at FIU. I never left that lab. That lab back then was the ecotoxicology and risk assessment lab. Now it's the coastal conservation and restoration lab because okay. we, somebody new took over, but technically, physically speaking, I've always been in the same lab. Yeah. It's just, people would ask me like, Hey, you know, can you come help me with this? Or are you interested in working on this project? Because I'd love to get your perspective. And that's how I sort of managed to branch out a lot mm. um, mm -hmm. and, and to do different things, even though it wasn't necessarily my core project, I was involved in other people's projects. And that's mm. sort of how I got to dip my toes into other people's work as well. Got it. You're right. It is about how you, who you know. And, you know, as a biologist myself in Tennessee, I have um, limited resources to travel and do some of the things that I would love to do with other biologists in Florida or across the globe or something like that. Like it's important to do and volunteer and work with the biologists where you are. But yet I also do want to like do coral reef restoration with you guys. Like I'm going to have to plan a trip down there to help that out because that sounds awesome. We're, we're working on setting up some coral reefs of out planting some corals. So that should be fun. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're going to try to build a reef and see if we can maintain it. <laughs> wow. But I mean, it, it's, it's, I always tell people, you know, don't shoot down an opportunity just because you might not think it's exactly what you want to do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because A, you never know. You know, I've been fortunate enough that I've had a great support system, you know, in terms of my advisors. You know, my advisors, I was very loyal to them and they were very loyal to me, which is something that I very much so appreciated mm-hmm. um, because they have helped me a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, back then when I first started, I probably thought my what I wanted to study was something completely different. I mean, you know, I was never an an aquatic toxicologist or contaminant person, to be honest with you. I was never really a coral reef person. Yeah. It was just never like one of those things where I'm like, yeah. And and now I'm kind of just like, nah, I'll do some coral stuff. That sounds cool. Because to me, it's more about the question. Mm. My question has always been the same, you know, like what are we doing as society? What are we putting out into the ocean? How is this affecting the ocean? And what is that going to mean for us at the end? It's never necessarily been about a specific ecosystem or for specific organism. It's just, how are we influencing it? And how is it going to influence us? And that just so happens to be something that you can do anywhere. Mm. You find yourself in a lot of weird little places like, okay, well, this is something, you know, like I did some Arctic stuff and I was like, that couldn't be further away from what I do. And I was like, but this is cool because, uh-huh. you know, people don't really think about the Arctic when they think about, you know, like what we're doing, like chemical wise and pollution wise. And there's a bunch of trash there that has just traveled there via ocean sure. that shouldn't be there. So, you know, it, it's always very interesting. I tell people like, especially younger people who are starting out, don't try to like do something because you think it'd be cool to like work with sharks or work with dolphins Mm -hmm. like that's not what makes a good scientist it's asking a question and trying to figure out you know the answer to this question Mm -hmm. versus just well I don't know what I want to do but I want to work with sharks Mm -hmm. it rarely works out Mm -hmm. (laughs) or you get a job like you know sea world or something doing aquaculture taking care of sharks or something like that so but even that's super hard. I feel like yeah, people think yeah. it's super easy to get that's like, true. an aquarium yeah. job to like take care of animals. Like it's not that it's, easy. It's not. <laughs> and people hold on to those jobs too. Like yeah. if you get a job doing working in an aquarium, even the local aquarium here, people will cling on to those jobs because they know how valuable it is to yeah. have a position at uh, an aquarium. Right. So do you think... Um, with regards to science and encouraging people to be in the sciences, do you think there's enough funding for the projects that can answer all those questions you have? What are we putting in the oceans? What are we doing as humans? Those are such great questions, but how how can we improve the funding? I mean, I'm biased, so I'm going to say that the funding is always limited. We always need more funding. But I think an important thing is to sort of branch out and how you go about acquiring funding. Okay. I'm in a very specific position because I do, you know, some aquatic toxicology work. I technically can sort of link that back to human health. So yeah. I have a couple different places to pull funding from. And even then it's extremely difficult for me to get funding. Um, you know, you just, a, an important thing, and my number one tip for people is when you're trying to have someone on your side that knows how to go about doing this. Mm -hmm. Because when I was flying solo, it was a lot more difficult than when I had a support system to help me navigate it. Because a lot of it is also just bureaucracy and how you word specific things. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily, you know, that your proposal was bad or that your funding idea was bad. It's just that you may not have worded it in the right way. And that caused them to be like, well, we're not really sure about this. I have, you know, there's a professor at my university that I I really want to work with also. And she does, she's a chemist and she does contamination stuff. And she put in a proposal and her proposal was denied. And she did not change anything on the proposal other than she changed the name of a specific compound and labeled it as an endocrine disruptor. And all of a sudden they were like, yep, we need that. And she's like, it was the same proposal. I just changed, you know, the name of the compound to endocrine disruptor. And then all of a sudden people were like, yep, we need to study this. And then they funded it the second time around, but it was the same. Wow. (laughs) So having really strong connections with the advisors, professors, people who have experience getting that funding, those funding streams, grant writers, um, peer reviewed publications, everyone, and, and being on like kind of offering to help them get funding and learn from them. 
Right. Is that your tip essentially? Yeah. Yes. And there's also, which is something that's great that I've seen happening a lot more recently is people sort of going down the startup and nonprofit route Mm -hmm. because they're not necessarily getting governmental funding. You know, there's this great collective here in Florida called Seaworthy Collective, and they go out to these major companies and they get sponsors. Oh, and those sponsors are funding research that is going to go towards, you know, making South Florida a blue and green economy, which I think is great. So there's sort of different avenues recently popping up, which I love because it's great to get different perspectives. It's great to get perspectives from people in industry, you know, from startups, from academia, because at the end, that's what we need for the whole picture. Academics are just focused on the academics. Right. But, you know, these nonprofit organizations and these startup organizations, they're out there trying to actually come about with something that they can implement to make profit. Right. So, so it's very interesting to see all of these things working together. And, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that Florida, you know, within the next couple of years, we can sort of take the reins and start leading that a little bit because there isn't a lot of collaboration between academia, industry, and sort of this now niche, like blue economy startup world that's popping up more everywhere. Talk more about that, the blue economy. What, is, what do you mean by blue economy? Well, essentially what they're trying to do is build these startups that, you know, are environmentally friendly and are specifically there to do research that's supposed to benefit the environment. And, you know, as much as, yes, they're environmentalists, they're also companies, you know, they're businesses. They're trying to figure out something that is environmentally friendly, but can make a profit, which I know here, you know, in the conservation world, we always tend to sort of frown upon that. Like, no, you can't make a profit. And I was like, but why not? if you can make a profit, other people are willing to invest in it, which just means you get more funding to continue doing something good while making a profit. It's a win, win, win. I am so glad you're saying this because like, <laughs> I, I have been struggling in my head because we're trying to do something like that through Nova Conservation. And I just keep going back and forth. Should I be a nonprofit or should I be a for-profit? But what will people think about for-profits and da, 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 da. And I'm like, listen, conservation needs funds no matter what. And we cannot keep relying on grants and fundraising. No, and I feel like a lot of conservationists sort of want to be like martyrs and be like, well, I'm poor and I'm doing it for the love of it. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, you don't have to be poor, Mm. you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be poor forever. I would like to at least live comfortably, you know. (laughs) <laughs> there's no shame in it and I feel like there's a very big stigma in the convert like in the conservation yeah. field where they're like if you're making money you're not doing it for the right reasons and I was like but you need money to do the research anyways does it Dude. matter how you whether you're getting the money from sponsors who right. want to see a profit or whether you're getting the money from the government who wants to see results right <laughs> right the action is the same it's just the motivation that's quote-unquote different hmm. Gosh, I, I am so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I, um, I am scared of money, to be honest with you, because of that stigma associated I with am it. Not, I am Good. not money. I would like some money. <laughs> I'm sitting there like, can I have some money, please? <laughs> if you guys like you know like all of the people who want to be poor conservationists kudos to you i'll be over here trying to trying to make some money right (laughs) and that's that is oh that is so great that's more than great especially (laughs) because i can tell your heart and i know my heart too like i'm fearful of what other people think blah 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 but i know my heart and i know if i made money through Nova Conservation, it would go to the right funding sources. And I know you and you make money. It's not going to be like you're buying Mercedes and, you know. I just want a greenhouse, to be honest. Yeah, like it's simple things. Like we're not asking for (laughs) billion dollars here. I'm from Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic makes a lot of its money from the tourism industry. The tourism industry is dependent on having a healthy ecosystem. So technically speaking, Dominican Republic wants to save the environment, not Mm. because, you know, they love the, not they don't love the environment, but because, you know, that's their livelihood. So are you saying that Dominican Republic or, you know, island nations are wrong for wanting to keep the environment, you know, healthy and thriving because it brings them in revenue. 
I think it's very easy for people who are on the outside looking and saying, I'm doing this for the money and I'm doing this, you know, to be purely altruistic versus Mm. saying like, hey, these island nations are dependent on it because they want money. Mm. But I'd be truthful. I don't know how many, you know, Dominicans truly care about coral reefs because they're just a beautiful ecosystem, but they know what feeds their families. So Mm. that's what motivates them to want to protect it. Is that really so wrong? No. And man, I had a train of thought going, but I kind of just <laughs> want to like hear you talk. Like I had an idea and I, I, I would just, I just want to keep hearing you talk about this because this is so good because tourism. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Keep talking, keep talking. So when you go to the Dominican people pay to, is it just like snorkel trips or is it research focused trips? I mean, it's both. I've seen people go to Dominican Republic for research. Um, it gets a little tricky in my experience because there are people in Dominican Republic who would probably love to study marine science. And then there's Mm. people coming from outside and then doing like these giant trips over there, but then they're not supporting the local economy, which is what sort of grinds my gear a little bit. Yes. I've seen people very close to my hometown. They have, you know, this like nonprofit, like teaching organization where they fly people out and it costs like $5,000 to go there for 10 days. And, I'm like, that's nice, but, but where are the locals? Like, Mm -hmm. why do you not have local people working for you here? Why are you not, you know, using that money to train some of the local people who are probably at universities who would love to do this to sort of, you know, be your foot on the ground. And and that's where my biggest issue comes from. It's when people come from outside into these Island nations and, you know, they want to do all this stuff. And I'm not saying don't do it, but include the locals. Don't Mm -hmm. just shut out the people you can leave tomorrow, those people are still going to be here. Mm-hmm. So you might as well train the people on the ground to actually do some meaningful work. Yeah, that is a huge pet peeve of mine is this colonization approach or the white Western approach where com- someone comes in and they run this organization and they do nothing to give back and contribute to local economies and culture and <laughs> the research, even even conservationists and um, early career, like biologists who want to get experience in the scientific communities in the Dominican right. Republic, say. So if they, if they cannot get trained to work in science, then we're missing this core demographic of people to be in the sciences that know the culture, that know the ecology closest. Um, we don't just need more Westerners to come in, do the parachute science, and then leave Right. We need, need a to lot train more up. collaboration. Yeah. Especially considering the fact, I mean, you know, people always ask, like, why do you think biodiversity, like, biodiversity, biodiversity is important, yes. They're like, why do you think diversity is important within STEM, you know? And, and, and I always hear, whenever people get asked this question, I always hear, well, you know, it's just, it's an important thing to have, you know, everything should be diverse. And I think what people don't focus on is we don't just need diversity for diversity's sake. We need diversity for perspective's sake. And everybody has a different perspective. You know, we, you and I, for example, we might look at a problem in completely different ways and none of those ways are wrong. We're Mm -hmm. just looking at two sides of a coin, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what we need more of in science because a lot of scientists, especially the older generation, they're very headstrong and they're like well it's my way or the highway like I'm doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong but they're missing all of the perspectives from people who just view things differently Mm -hmm. yeah I I couldn't have said it better myself (laughs) that's just awesome like I I just want to shut up and let you keep talking (laughs) (laughs) this is so good what what do you think of ecotourism in general so not just Dominican but other places, other research idea trips, um, how can ecotourism be most effective in A, gaining funds for conservation, and then B, bringing those funds back to support local economies, support true research initiatives? What are your thoughts on that? How can we make ecotourism be better? When done right, I think it's a great thing. There's, oh, So here's my thing, which goes back to my, there's always going to be, you know, wealthy people who, you know, want to go on a trip or want to pretend like they're doing something nice. Take their money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If they want to give it, take 
the money uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> because all that's enabling you to do is like a they get to go out and learn about an ecosystem or you know learn about some sort of conservation that's great they're going to be more motivated by it and then mm-hmm. you can use that money to train the people you know train the young students train the locals train you know especially like young scientists and people who need experience who can't otherwise afford to get it. You take that, like, you know, it's a little bit of a Robin Hood scheme. You take the money from the rich and then you distribute it to the people who actually need it. But those are going to be the people that are going to make it possible to even do this because then they're going to, you know, go out and teach other people about, you know, these ecosystems and and, and sort of lead the way on the ground, which I think is a beautiful thing. (laughs) I love that. I fully support that. How do we prevent though exploitation of like the organization you were talking about, which you didn't name, which is good um, because we don't want to like call them out, but also be careful that it's not just that we're giving money to a certain demographic, but we're actually giving funds and support to the organizations that charge these trips, but are contributing it back. Like how do we make sure that that message is clearly communicated because that's what I'm trying to figure out with Nova. I mean, I think the big thing is just transparency. Mm-hmm. For this organization, it was very clear. Like if, if you looked at, you know, I mean, I was there on the ground and I just heard about it. So I, you know, just well, basically just went there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like even if you look online, like you look at the people who are working for it, you look at the people who, you know, they've trained and they all look the same. Mm-hmm. I, I, in my opinion, that's a red flag, you know, cause, cause then you have other organizations who do it very well. And then, you know, you see that you just see from their social media presence or from their web presence, that there is a lot of collaboration there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what we need a lot more of, you know, I do some work with, you know, sharks for kids, shark education. And it's great because a lot of the stuff that they do actually gets used in Bahamian classrooms to teach the children about, you know, sharks and and ocean conservation. And and I think that's what we need to see a lot more. We need to see these organizations actually giving that knowledge back to the people whose land they're basically on. I think, I, I think that's a very important thing. And it's just transparency is key to that. You know, when I see an organization being like really sketchy and not wanting to put out a lot, I'm like, what's going on in the background there? Mm Because if you're doing things right, you should be proud of doing things right. You know, I would be proud. Like, you know, now I'm doing a lot of stuff in the Caribbean and I'm hoping to be able to, you know, have different partners within the Caribbean. I was like, that's going to be really cool for you to be like, yeah, I'm working with this person over here and this person over here. And, you know, these people are going to help me collect data and I'm going to help collect data for these. Like, it's a beautiful thing when things work in symbiosis. Uh-huh. So when people are being sketched, I'm like, what are you doing wrong? <laughs> He's like, what's your deal? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting you say that because like, I, I'm very proud of partnering with nonprofits and research institutions. But for a time, I put that on the back burner because I, I was for Nova because I was like, well, I want to have an authentic database of reviews of these organizations. So I don't want to associate myself with any organizations because we're doing authentic, transparent reviews of this, right. these groups. And um, <laughs> that's, that's still on the back burner. Because <laughs> Hasn't everything been on the back burner in this past year? Someone yeah. asked me like, hey, can you send me like an updated email of like your accomplishments in the last year? And I was like, I'm alive. I'm, <laughs> 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 like, I'm still alive. That's my accomplishment for the year. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. My kids are alive. I'm alive. That's, that's how I that's feel. That's all that counts right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I have no energy for anything else. <laughs> but, it, you know, it, it, a lot I'm of trying. things are in the back burner and I think that's okay. I, I think as people, we need to forgive ourselves a little bit mm-hmm. if we haven't been as productive in the last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. That's something I'm learning. Just how to, <laughs> how to be very kind to myself. <laughs> Because I have a very mean inner critic, I've learned. So she is a little bitch, and I'm shutting her down. Um, so when with your specific work, 
Well, first of all, what are you doing for your PhD project again, like specifically going out and so right cool? now, this is actually what I've been working on for the last week and glued to my computer reading papers you know, mm. for those that think marine conservation and marine science is just being out in the field. Nope. It's a lot of paper reading. Um, <laughs> yes. So <laughs> the general idea for my PhD right now is to sort of understand synergistic effects. So yep. synergistic for those that don't know what this means or don't have a chemical background is essentially when two compounds or the sum of two compounds is greater when combined than each individual one. Yeah. So I, I liken this because I'm an amateur gardener to like, if you have a garden, if you have a pesticide and a fertilizer, chances are if you use both a pesticide and a fertilizer on your garden, unless you're a total crap gardener, chances are that these two things combined will have a greater effect on your garden being healthier. Now we have this thing Unfortunately for us, it's the opposite within conservation because you could have two compounds, for example, that individually would be bad enough. For example, global warming so, or climate change and you know ocean acidification as one thing, and then a pollutant. It could be that these two things working together are basically just creating a perfect storm. Mm. So if you had one or the other, it would be bad, but by combining them, the effect is greater. So I'm trying to see how climate change and chemical pollution mm. is sort of working together and what that means for our ecosystems. Because a lot of the times, you know, we'll focus on one thing, but the truth is out there, it's not just one thing happening. You know, so, so it's never really the full picture when you just study one thing that's affecting the environment. It's, yeah. it's, we've got so many different pieces constantly moving at the same time. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how these things are working together to affect our coral reef ecosystems, mm -hmm. you know, down from the actual health of the corals to, you know, populations and communities and the trophic structures. So it's really trying to get a broad picture of, of what climate change and chemical pollution is doing to our coastal ecosystems. That's a lot. That's pretty. Which heavy. is a lot, and everybody gets there like you need to rein it in. And I was like, I don't know how. <laughs> how do I focus on just one thing? I, have I was like, problem. I can't. Do you foresee getting back to like the ecotourism piece and the collaborative efforts? Do you foresee a way that your field work could bring people out and help uh, raise funds for this type of research? while doing a tourism impact? So I actually am. Um, part of it, a, a very big part of what we're going to do is going to be looking at coral reef ecosystems that are sort of in these hot zones for pollution. You know, we've mm -hmm. identified certain, certain areas where we're like, you know, there's major point sources of pollution here. Yeah, It's coastal. So we know that, you know, climate change is happening around here and then trying to go out to corals that are a little bit further out or that are you know in marine protected areas that are perfectly healthy so i actually do want to involve a lot of citizen science initiatives in this you know by having people you know through local dive shops come out to these reefs and survey them for us mm -hmm. you know take pictures survey submit them to us and, and you know it's great because a there gets to be money made through it but B, you're also going out and, you know, teaching people like this is what an unhealthy reef like this is what a healthy reef looks like and should look like, mm -hmm. you know, in South Florida, we have a lot of reefs that are dead and people will go out diving or people that don't know what these reefs look like 10, 15 years ago are like, oh, well, it's a great reef. And then, you know, you've got the veterans who are like, I was diving here 20 years ago and this looks dead compared to back then. And you're mm. just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I, I, it is something that I really want to include in my research, just because I feel like once you get people to actually see what it should look like versus mm -hmm. what it looks like now because of our impact, I, I think that's a very big thing. I remember the very first time, you know, when I started diving, I, I'd seen a whole bunch of dead reefs or reefs that were half dead. And, but, you know, like to me, the ocean's the oceans. I was like, it's still a reef, even though it's dead. And then I saw a healthy reef and I was like, what the hell have I been looking at this whole time? I was like, what was that crap that I've been looking at this whole time? <laughs> so, you know, it's going to be like one of those things, you know, like when you do a two tank dive where your first dive will be at an unhealthy reef and then your second dive will be at a healthy reef. And, and, and I think that's a great way to sort of get people to appreciate it a little bit more and mm. to get them to, you know, like take these pictures and write up these reports. I think, you know, 
it gives people a self a sense of accomplishment when they get to do something like that at least for me it does so mm-hmm. yeah yeah and that's that's what we're trying to do through nova is to bring in funds through through putting together trips that can take people out with real researchers and right. do this hands on the ground experience get get funds for that for right. conservation and then we're teaching people exactly through this and then they can go back to their homes and their towns if they're from out of town and do more conservation efforts <laughs> back right. at home and then the funds can be used for conservation research and helping diversity and local people and all of those just like awesome things that right I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing and I mean you know it's not even just like the super rich people that want to do it you know I know people who who are just you know day-to-day average Joe people you know yeah. and they love you know the chance to get out there and actually just see a little bit about what's happening and you know what they can do to help and I think I think it's a beautiful thing it builds a sense of community you know yeah I mean I am that demographic I like I I'm not super rich, but I want to go like see other biologists and see what they're right. doing and, and see that hands-on work and if you're going to go on vacation anyway might as well make might it a give well. back trip right <sighs> Right. Might as well get something out of the trip. And I mean, I mean, obviously for me, it's a little bit different. I'm I'm like a huge nerd. I'm going on vacation now and, you know, we're going whale watching and, you know, I'm going to like a for like a fossil place. And I'm just like, yeah, fossils. (laughs) Are you going on vacation? It's like, yeah, we're going to go hiking and digging through the mud to look for fossils. That's super cool. So for me, it's like, yeah, I want to do this stuff anyways. But I, I think, you know, a lot of people have a deep, the ocean is relatable to a lot of people. Mm. You know, it's one of those things that as scientists, we are extremely fortunate because it's something that's just super relatable. You know, there's some people who work on, I don't know. I, I don't even want to say cell research or something because that, that you know, that's something, but, but you can't see a cell like you can. Yeah. See. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, people who are studying something like super obscure and people are like, okay, cool. Like, I mean, I think all sciences are awesome, so don't come for me. But you know, it's like <laughs> I feel like the ocean is something that to most people is relatable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're in a very unique position where we can make people care about the ocean. You just have to bring it back to why it matters to them. Mm-hmm. And somebody's like, Well, why should I care about the ocean? They're like, Well, do you like your sushi? And they're like, You're not gonna have any more sushi if you know we deplete all of our fisheries. And it's all of a sudden like, oh, okay. Or, you know, do you like having things shipped from across the world? It comes on a cargo boat without a healthy ocean. That cargo boat is not going to be able to deliver your things. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, do you like living in a place that has a decent economy without tourism? That's going to go down the shitter. So, you know, it's really mm-hmm. just bringing it back and making people care for it. And once you find that one specific thing that they care about, then all of a sudden it sparks their interest. Like, oh, okay. You're right. Mm-hmm. We should be conserving this. I, I do not want to change my lifestyle. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all interconnected. All interconnected. Sometimes I go through my day like thinking about how people who are in, you know, like just business or office jobs or do like design work or graphic design, right. they like they don't think about the environment in their everyday to day life. And I'm like, that is such a loss because we need to be thinking about this every day. I think about it every day, how all the impacts will have these effects on our lifestyle and our health and impact the, you know, third world countries, the most poor people, the most, especially the impacts of climate change for people who haven't been contributing at all to climate change countries who haven't been contributing to man-made climate change will be the most impacted. And um, like, we just sit in our, I, come from a privileged background, we just sit here like, I'm just gonna do my thing and go to the grocery store and not think about it, but we need to be thinking about it. I mean, to me, it's very interesting. We just had this discussion on social media the other day about whether climate change is a social justice issue or not. And someone said, well, I don't think it's a social justice issue. I think it's just an issue in general. And by trying to label it as one thing, you're downplaying it. And I was like, well, it's not necessarily downplaying it. It It is a social justice issue. And, you know, 
I, I feel like it's very easy for people to say that it's not a social justice issue unless you've been there hmm. and you've seen it. So some of my friends live up in, in the Canadian Arctic. They're Inuit. They're indigenous to the Arctic. They are fascinating to me because their global footprint, like I'm pretty sure they're like in the negatives for their global footprint. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Like they still go out and hunt, you know, they, <laughs> they live in very small, close-knit, tight communities, you know, and, and mm-hmm. but they're the ones being affected the most by climate change. You know, the first thing to go is the sea ice. And that's sea ice that is something that, you know, it's been, they've been leading it, you know, like this is their traditional knowledge. They go back generations. They yeah. pass down knowledge, you know, from generation to generation. Yeah. And because of climate change, what they know about their own ecosystems that has been passed down by their ancestors is suddenly changing. Like, but they contribute the least amount to it. So, you know, Dominican Republic gets flooded every time there's a hurricane, you know, and, and I think it's very easy to say it's not a social justice issue until it's you or your family that's on the roof of your house because the streets are flooded. Bingo. You know, it's very easy to sort of try to dismiss, well, you know, it's just a general issue. It's not a social justice issue, but, but it kind of is a social justice issue because usually the people that are so poor that they're being affected by it, that they can't do anything to change it, don't have the means to contribute to it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Man, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. (laughs) This is so good. And I hope that, um, I wanna be mindful of time and everything, but I hope that um, your work and the work we're doing through NOVA can really contribute and help and solve some of these injustices and these systemic problems that I see and that exist, getting more diverse backgrounds in, in science and ethical ecotourism. Right. I, I think it's just a matter of perspective and that's what a lot of people seem to miss. Cause it's not even like I'm saying like, you know, like well, let's flip the script and say, you know, like in Dominican Republic, nobody should ever come from the outside. It's no. great to have a diverse team because everybody brings in their unique and different perspectives of perspectives through their different experiences. I'm not saying like, no, don't do this or no, don't like, I'm saying you actually need a diverse team. And I mean that from every yeah. possible angle, you know, I'm not saying don't include the white man. Maybe the white man has a different perspective than I have, you know, because his experiences are different. It's just about bringing everybody into the room who needs to be in that room. Mm, preach, yeah. <laughs> we need to hear from as many diverse perspectives as possible when it comes to And, stuff and like that's this. the only way, in my opinion, that we're actually gonna get a handle on, on things before it gets to the point where it's too late and then it will truly be gloom and doom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not there yet. We're, there's still hope. We, we, we still got time. Hear. We just we gotta make the effort now. <laughs> yes, we need to hear from the Inuits, we need to hear from the locals, we need to hear their perspectives, their input, their backgrounds, their knowledge. It's so important and it's so vital. I mean, in in the Arctic, there was a perfect example of it because of the fact that there was an ecotourism station there. Oh, really? Yes, but it was on land that indigenous people could not visit because they just didn't have the means to go. Because you need like a a small plane to go. But then when you looked at everybody who worked for it, there was no indigenous people. I was like, how are you going to come to this land as an outsider that you know nothing about because you did not grow up here and you do not possess that traditional knowledge? Because it's not like, you know, something as easy as saying, well, I moved to this island. You know, my great grandparents moved to this island. Like, no. Mm. (laughs) And then try to teach other people about it in a very bad way, in my opinion, because it wasn't even ethical ecotourism. Mm. They were being they were being very disruptive of local wildlife, which in my opinion was, you know, a no-go. Yeah, no. <laughs> and then not have any indigenous people there, but you know, like a trip out there was like five thousand dollars for like three nights. You know, so like really you mm-hmm. had a chance to do something good and you just shot yourself in the foot with it. So mm-hmm. and that's that's what we're trying, like the, there's so much exploitation in the industry, whether it's for people who want to be the ecotourism tour guides or biologists or what have you, that anyone's willing to jump in and work for free and kind of 
overlook all the other systemic problems. So to do this right, it's gonna take careful planning, consideration from all perspectives. That's why I'm having these conversations to get as much diverse input as possible. And the nuance of how, what, what traps to not fall into that other organizations have maybe fallen into. Right. Oh, yeah, so it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And I also don't, cause I've, cause I've talked to some, you know, I've talked to people and they're like, well, make sure you do this, make sure you do this. And I'm like, I am one person right now. <laughs> <I'm> doing, <laughs> we are all doing the best we can given the means and resources we have at our disposal. And I'm, I, I'm hoping that the organizations that you've been referring to, like had the best of intentions, maybe need tweaking, but that's why I'm like, there's room for growth. We don't want to call out people. We don't want to like shame people. We don't want to, um, I'm, I'm trying not to like, like just blatantly blast people. Oh, they did this wrong. Maybe <laughs> it's a step in the right direction. And if they knew, or if they, they were more educated and had the resources to hear from the local people, the indigenous people and be like, Hey, we can't do this. Or I don't know, whatever. There might be room for growth. Right. I, I hope so. I hope people who are in this ecotourism, ethical ecotourism want to grow. Now I know there's definitely organizations who are just all about the money and yeah, that's not, that's not cool. So no, we have to be careful. It does take research and it takes transparency and it takes um, discernment, discernment. Right. But I feel like when you actually find that balance of everything, it's just like such a great tool for conservation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I think so too. And I'm banking on that, that there is a market out there. Like conservation kind of needs to have that marketing to be the right way. And I'm not a marketer person, but I'm, I'm thinking about how we can tap into the people who really and truly do care and right. will want to give that, those funds back to. Right. Like they can see where their funds are going to, whether it's research, uh, the research benefit for like tangible gear on the ground or local communities to hire, to help with the ethical ecotours or biological technician work or, right. or like subsidies for um, diversity in the, the scientific integrity of a project right. to help people who are not privileged um, get a foot in the door, right. get papers and peer review and science. And if that's what you're passionate about and you have a right. need and you, and you have scientific inquiry and, and want to do that work, there's a way that we can subsidize that. Right. But it, it's, it's all, it's all a process. So yeah. Um, it's a work in progress. Well, maybe we can talk more, um, but I do want to <laughs> be respectful of time. And I know you said you had an appointment to go to in a little bit. So Rose, is there anything final that you would like to say, add, edit, that you didn't get to talk about as much as you would have liked to? Um, what are your final thoughts and contributions to this? I mean, you've done so much that I'm like, just, we could end it here and it'd be great. Anything final? I think, um... It's just, especially for younger people, it's it's to sort of try to keep an open mind and, and you know, yeah. to go into this field with a sort of sense of wonder because that, that's what it's all mm. about. It's, you know, we joke, like we, you know, joked earlier and it's like, you know, I want to make money. Like the truth is <laughs> we're probably not doing this to become millionaires, but it's, it's a rewarding field in and of itself. And it's just sort of keep an open mind and, and try to travel, you know, through go through your path with that and and don't try to you know limit yourself like marine conservation or conservation in general is just such a broad field and what might work for me might not work for somebody else or vice versa so it's like don't like force yourself to try to follow a path that's been laid by somebody else because maybe that's just not the way it was meant to be but you'll find your own way of doing things and it might be better for you so mm, that's beautiful listen to your heart listen to your intuition trust yourself that's something I'm I trying to <laughs> uh where can people find you on social media what are your handles tags if people want to hang out and talk on the interwebs on instagram it's psycho so s-c-i-e dot c-o s-c-i-e dot c-o yeah 
on Twitter, it's psycho.rose or psycho rose. And wait, I'm just now putting this together that psycho. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's perfect. That is so funny. <laughs> Fun playing with that one for a while. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That is so smart. I also have a website, psycho.net, um, where I post a lot of infographics and, and just materials that people can share. So it's great yeah, that's for a, educational purposes. That's another thing we didn't even really touch on is your brilliance in scientific communication. <laughs> um, so I appreciate everything you're doing. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. You Thank too. You. I'm glad we finally figured it out. <laughs> And for those of you, I, I met Rose initially because I did like a live stream on, on Instagram and I had like a glass of wine and I was like, well, let's just see how this goes. And, and because I've, no one really joins my lives, but that's okay. <laughs> that's just what happened. I'm like, whatever. But Rose joined and she was talking back and forth with me. And then she like came on the, the screen and we just got to meet. It was just so beautifully timed and random and I'd rather I'd rather have a live where it's just one person and really connect with them than you know have a ton of people and not have much of an impact so that was a really cool thing to <laughs> to have so it was really nice to meet you through Instagram and yeah we'll talk more soon thank you for your input good. thank you for your hard work in scientific integrity and ecotoxicology <laughs> And yeah, there's just so much. I'm sure you're probably feeling underfunded and undervalued as a PhD student and know that your work is valuable <laughs> and it is worthwhile and we see you. <laughs> want to go tell us, send NSF a video of me crying like in the bathtub, like send me money, please. <laughs> <laughs> My work is important, I promise. <laughs> maybe that'll work <laughs> well I don't have money to give right now but I have encouragement hope and hopefully through Nova and some other organizations maybe we can, we can I'm help. looking forward to seeing how this plays out because I the hopes is to have a lot of citizen science and mm -hmm. science communication be an integral part of my work so mm. fingers crossed that the next five years are successful yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, this won't be the end of our communication. We'll we'll talk soon nope. and maybe plan something, plan a trip or something like that. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Rose. It was so good talking with you. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet. Thank you.